slowly, taking the long view. And hey, this is episode 8.20, so this season, the really long, the really long view, view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, and also audio setup shenanigans. Oh I'm Chris Kreitcho. I'm Stephen Garadini, and I am the one who had audio setup shenanigans today. I can't even tell you why. It just decided to be one of those days. You may have... You may have had a few of those in 2020. We hear you. Audio is hard, people. So today we're going to talk about Zeynep Tefeki's Twitter and Tear Gas. And this is a book about social media and regime change, both electoral and otherwise. And Mm -hmm. we did not plan that. We probably should have thought we probably should have but (laughs) but we're we're not good at planning like this is the i mean we're actually really good at planning but we're not really good at planning for current events i mean it's not how we. this one is like the one current event we probably could have thought through seeing as it happens every four years in the same every four years but we didn't and so we're talking about social media politics electoral change regime change and notably, we're recording before the American election. We don't know how the American election is going to turn out. And so you're going to listen to this podcast after the election because it comes out after the election. <laughs> yep. This comes out the day after the American election. Unless we like scare ourselves and like don't post it <laughs> the day after the election, which I fully reserve the right to do. <laughs> But at a basic level, you may hear some things here and you may think, wow, that's really callous coming from the situation that we're in. Or like great post-election commentary, guys. Nope. Maybe prescient. (laughs) Like maybe we are actually going to be prescient, but not great post-election commentary, not terrible post-election commentary. This is pre-election talking about things in general terms commentary, people. So if we seem out of step with what's happening it's because we're out of step with what's happening welcome to winning slowly. welcome to winning slowly with all that out of the way this book was amazing it's so freaking good this is one of the best books of its sort i have ever read zainab tufeki is an astoundingly good writer and thinker even if you have points of disagreement with her her ability to do deep, hard academic work where she's moving the ball down the field and say it in words that just about anybody could pick. Like, if you can read the newspaper, you can read this book and enjoy it and understand it. Oh, my gosh. If I'm ever a tenth as good a writer as her, I will count it a great and glorious triumph. Indeed. Not everyone can read the newspaper, though. That's part of the problem. (laughs) Not because they can't read, but because information blackouts they might not have access to the newspaper or the newspaper might be censored and yes social media intersects with this in complicated let's talk about the let's book. talk about the book so i fully second everything that chris is saying this book is an academic work that just is not even remotely as difficult to read as normal academic work in some chapters i was like this is kind of fun to read like (laughs) i'm enjoying this story tell me more than the last two chapters hit and you're like i'm not Not enjoying this story please don't tell me anymore (laughs) especially chapter nine (laughs) oh so this book is set up as a academic work it's a demonstration of the research and theory that dr tefeki has come up with over many years of being an online and offline activist, studying as well as participating in 
activism of various political types and movements throughout basically all the way back to the early 90s. Tufeki is... She she coined a word for herself because when she started doing this, literally nobody else in the world seemed to actually be doing it. So she calls herself, I think the word she uses is a techno-sociologist. She's describing how technology and sociology interact, and she basically helped invent this field. She is also very interesting in that she's very well equipped to do this because she has a advanced degrees in sociology and also has worked as a programmer. And she's a very interesting kind of sociologist in that sometimes you think of sociologists as people who stand back and observe and try to be neutral. Zainab Tufeki is not standing back and observing and being neutral. She is showing up and protesting with protesters quite regularly, yeah. as well as then conducting interviews with them for sociological research. And she's quite happy While to tell you about all of that. <laughs> Yeah, she points out at several points where she was like, I tried not to interact with them, but then like I had to interact with them. Right. (laughs) They needed to know. So this is a participant activist book. Mm -hmm. It comes from a line of from the ethnography side, people who are participant observers in their research field. Uh, She does not particularly use the terms ethnography and wouldn't probably espouse them. But the whole concept of you can't really study something that's humany without becoming part of it <laughs> is humany. basic yeah it's humany. well i i study things that are texty so <laughs> you know they're mostly text but sometimes not i think all the things she studies here are human none of them are <laughs> well i mean social media is text e but she doesn't do a lot of that so yeah humany yeah so that's where this book comes from she is turkish so the backdrop of turkey which side note whoa turkey true story. I was familiar with some of the things about Turkey, but I know a lot more about Turkey now. Same. And I'm... Wild. Whoa. <laughs> They've had a rough 40 years. 60 years? 60 years. 100 years? I don't know. A long time. Follow the yeah. Ottoman Empire forward? It's been bumpy. Yeah, bumpy. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of that, but there's also things about Occupy Wall Street and things about her very first sort of interaction with activism was Zapatistas um, from the uh, from Mexico during the 90s and global trade negotiations and the 1999 Seattle World Trade Organization protests get thrown in there. And so there's a wide, wide yep. swath of protests and social movements to say nothing of the thing that is the primary focus of the book, which is the Middle Eastern uh, revolutions and protests of 2011, which is sort of like the the central dot of the book. And then things go backwards and forwards from, from that dot. Um, and those were a pretty active time for protest and regime change in the uh, North African areas of both online and offline activism, which she talks about in the ways that those two intersect, which is the the point, theoretically, of this book, is that social media does things, online activism does things, and offline activism do different things. And they intersect. And they intersect. They work together. And they work together in complicated, surprising ways that are not necessarily what the popular treatment would lead you to believe. Yes. And so you would think that like, oh yeah, that's not that controversial to say that like, this thing does that thing, 
that thing does this other thing. And like, sometimes they meet and weird things happen, but you would be wrong. That's like controversial. (laughs) It's like deeply controversial that that would be like the main frame for this book. She's not a techno utopian and she is not a techno skeptic. She sees these as very important as having significant limitations and as having significant knock on effects. Yep toward how protests and other kinds of movements can play out. So the book is broken down into three parts and nine chapters. Those three parts are focused first on the impact of these technologies on movements and how movements form, how they develop, how they work. And then second, on the nature of the tools themselves, and she does some really good work here on the idea of technological affordances, that different technologies enable certain patterns and disable certain patterns, not necessarily because they're creating things that didn't exist at all before, and not necessarily because they're making it impossible to do certain things, but by what they make easy. This is a thing we've talked about a great deal in the past. And it's also something that Elizabeth Eisenstein covered in The Printing Press as an Agent of Change, which, side note, Zainab Tufeki definitely has multiple footnotes referencing The Printing Press as an Agent of Change. She knows what's up. Oh, yeah. And then the third part, she talks about how these same technologies and their affordances come into play both in the interaction between protests and protesters and other such movements and authorities and from the authorities coming the other way. So how do these things affect the ways that movements can and can't signal Mm -hmm. is the word she focuses on to authorities and how do authorities counteract these by using the same technologies and Chapter eight there was a little bit sad and disheartening and challenging at times because you could see where it was going. Chapter nine was deeply distressing and the more so because since she wrote this book in late 2016 and it was published in 2017, we've seen much more of the kinds of things she talked about in chapter nine, most especially and most grievously in China and its approach to the Uyghur population, and frankly, it's genocide there. It has been employing exactly the techniques she talks about in that section of the book, and it's it was no doubt grievous then, but it's yeah. far more so now. She talks extensively about the the methods that China uses to squash mobilization, which is really fascinating. And I think that I did not fully understand the contours Same. of the methods by which China does what they do, but we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. I was most fascinated by chapter eight, which was challenging at times, but it was the most theoretically advancing mm-hmm. in that it took this idea of uh, capacities and it explained that the reason that some movements succeed and some fail is in large part, not entirely, but in large part due to the capacities that those movements have. And so she breaks it down into three different types of capacities, disruptive capacity, electoral capacity, and uh, message capacity. That's not the right phrase. Narrative. Narrative capacity. That's what I'm looking for. But narrative capacity means the ability to put forward a message. And these three capacities can overlap or they can be completely separate or Movements can have one or two, but not the third. And she said that you need to have certain types of capacities and notably that you need to be able to signal certain types of capacities Mm -hmm. in ways that matter. And so she 
points out a particular aspect of history that I was actually there for, but just kind of forgot, really. The protests in 2002 over going to war in the Middle East, uh, which were enormous protests, she points out, but she said that they did not really signal any particular type of capacity that threatened the government, and so they just did what the government wanted to do, which was go to war. They had neither, in that case particularly, they had reasonable narratival capacity, but they had no disruptive or electoral capacity, so the government just kind of shrugged at it. It was like, okay, you're not happy, we don't really care. Yeah, disruptive capacity is the literal ability to disrupt the normal ways that things work, whether that be physical or logistical or structural or whatever. For example, the protests in Egypt that kicked off the eventual overthrow of Mubarak's government back in 2011 were disruptive in part because they were the occupation of a central square in a way that caused actual disruption to traffic and thereby some to some degree economics in the city. It was literally disruptive. And people kept pouring in because they saw it was disruptive and they wanted to make it more Mm -hmm. disruptive because they also had narrative capacities. So then there's the electoral capacities, which sometimes if you're a protest movement that's attempting to overthrow an organization, you might not need electoral capacity. But a lot of organizations that are protesting do need electoral capacity. And so she provides a contrast, a very even-handed contrast, I might say. Especially given that it's not hard to figure out at this point in the book where her sympathies lie between I mean, the Occupy movement the first... and the Tea Party movement. <laughs> well, the, page one, she says, as I was hanging out with the Zapatistas, right. I was like, oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I just I just hang out and off my pop to the, you know, to the Zapatistas. That's what I do on Tuesday right. nights, you know? Yeah. So it's a very even handed analysis of the Tea Party movement, which was A, a protest movement, B, that had strong narrative capacity and strong electoral capacity, but didn't have disruptive capacity because they didn't really want to disrupt. They were sort of anti-disruptive. They were, yeah, they, they, she calls them status quo movements, which I think is a little, I don't know, like I get what she's going for there, but they were like non-disruptive movements at the very least. Like they were not attempting to disrupt. They wanted the electoral process to continue and they wanted to be in charge of that process. Right. So they did not want the government to go away. They wanted to take over that government by electoral power. And she contrasts this very helpfully with the Occupy movement, which had much more effective messaging in some ways, at least, or comparably effective, at least to the people sympathetic to it. Yeah, it was diverse. Right different types of messaging, but they both had strong messages. The difference, though, was that due in part to some of its own internal philosophical commitments, Occupy for really all of its life as an active movement as such, chose not to develop electoral capabilities and capacities, whereas the Tea Party from the outset said, we're going to leverage these protests straight into electoral capacities. And the result of that was that the Tea Party basically took over a large swath of the Republican Party and thereby the House and non-trivial chunks of the Senate and then the presidency Mm -hmm. of the United States. Uh, So this is where I sort of break with that particular line of argument as a like technical matter. Like there were actually people who said I am part of the Tea Party, like in the House. Yes. 
And there were not as many in the Senate. And I'm not sure that the president of the United States knows what the Tea Party is in terms of his political opinions. No, but I think she's right that the creation of electoral motion yielded. That's fair. Whether people were identifying as part of the Tea Party caucus or not, the way they certainly you're right, they did in the House. And Donald Trump never called himself a Tea Party guy, but he was clearly aiming at that same sentiment in that base in a lot of his messaging. And and I would agree that they were aiming at the same base, a base that was there to be mobilized mm-hmm. because of the Tea Party, but was not mobilized with Tea Party messaging. It was mobilized with separate messaging, but it was already there because the capacity, the electoral capacity yep. was already there. And Occupy didn't. Now, Occupy did create latent interest in energy, which she notes contributed significantly to the Bernie Sanders campaign then, and though she couldn't have seen this, also this year in 2020. Right. But the difference that she calls out there in that effort to create capacities is a theme throughout the book. And chapter eight is where she really hammers it home in those three terms. But she points out that, and this was very illuminating to me, and I had never thought about it in these terms before, that one of the great strengths of movements organized via social media like Twitter is that they don't have to have long organizational periods to build up to it. They don't have to have formal leadership. Mm -hmm. They can therefore survive things that would have beheaded earlier events by putting leaders in jail, et cetera, because they don't have any formal leaders. They can assemble very quickly. Mm -hmm. Tahrir Square and some of the other examples she cites were essentially impromptu things that turned into country changing and in in non-trivial ways region and thereby world changing events right but these are also weaknesses because the ability to create a movement on the fly means you don't build some of these other capacities what she calls network internalities Mm -hmm. and she talks here in great length throughout the book about the American civil rights movement and how part of the reason they were able to be so effective over a long period of time is because before the March on Washington, before the bus boycott in Montgomery, they had done a great deal of organizational work that had forged loyalties to each other personally, even through fights and their fights when they happened tended to be private, not Posted on Twitter, and as we've talked about other times this season, infinitely screenshotable and reproducible. This is me nodding aggressively. (laughs) And so the dynamics of these movements have looked very different because they have different strengths and weaknesses that are, again, as I said at the outset, not necessarily created, but sharply increased and decreased by the effects of social media as the primary way that these movements coalesce and then continue themselves. Yeah. The section on the March on Washington was absolutely brilliant. Yes. I learned things that I did not know. And I've like literally done research projects, long-term research projects on the civil rights movement. So that's a fantastic section. And also I did not know that John Lewis, who rest his soul has died earlier this year, was uh, basically going to go out there and like rip stuff up with his with his speech and say it was that the Civil Rights Act was too little too late, <laughs> which I mean, maybe he might not have been like, wrong. But the, the yeah, everybody else was like, no, man, no, man, you can't you, go do you that. Should, Don't do you that. Shouldn't do that. 
don't do that. And so he agreed to take that line out of his speech. And like, if that's the, she demonstrates that as the sort of thing that like, if that had been on Twitter, you would never have lived that down. Right. And you can't get rid of that. Just many politicians now say things five years, 10 years earlier or a year or a month. And then they're like, oh yeah, I actually don't believe that anymore. And like, well, you did once. <laughs> What happened? And they're like, yeah. I don't know. Things. Also interesting that if I recall correctly, Lewis makes two appearances in this book. One there and one uh, when yeah. he came to show up and talk to some Occupy people. And he basically got shut down by two people, two white liberals because of the consensus oriented approach that these protests took. Yeah. And so what's interesting about Zainab Tefeki throughout this book is that she is super pro like left protest activism. Yep. And she is also like not afraid to say like, here are some stupid things that <laughs> yep. pro left activists do. And there's some things where she's like, look, they choose to do it this way and their goals are not electoral capacity. And that's good. And like, yeah, okay, I can get mm -hmm. behind that. Like that's not our goals. And so that's not what we want to do. There's other times where she's like, very strongly implicitly saying like what a stupid thing this is right you guys just wasted a massive opportunity here what, you, why'd you do that what and the best thing. part is she just describes it lays out here are the effects of this choice here's the trade-offs here's what it yields she never has to come out and attack anybody she can yeah, just say no. hey guys look don't do if you want to be effective don't do this this is dumb. don't do this yeah don't while also saying, like, it's your right to do that. Right. And if you, you want you to be that. leaderless and have no electoral capacity, like, <laughs> you could do that. Because she spends also a whole section, one of the chapters, basically talking about how being part of an activist movement is fun. And that's sometimes why people do it. It's because it's energizing. It's, it's solidarity. It's exciting. Yep. It's part of the life of the world, especially if you're a disaffected group, a disaffected country coming together and suddenly being able to have activist unity is like the point in yeah. some places. And that, as we mentioned earlier, can sometimes later mean other things. So like activist protests that don't, quote unquote, succeed, she strays as far as she can from the idea of success or failure, because she talks about these ideas of capacities more and says that, like, you got to look at their goals and then you got to look at what their capacities were. And that tells you what happened and what didn't happen and that sort of thing. So she doesn't like the idea of success or failure, but this is my podcast. So, <laughs> right. Did Occupy succeed in increasing taxes on the rich? Mm, no, no, not even they a little did bit. Not. No, no. They didn't. The Tea Party, by contrast, very much succeeded at its goals. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is actually the right stance for a book like this, which is that she does not make and avoids making assessments, which I think is excellent. And that leaves it to us to make assessments, which right. is fun. <laughs> Ta-da! Ta-da! But it so, also makes it a lot easier to get at something we talked about in our Carl Sagan episodes. It makes it a lot easier when you're making an argument with this structure to let people mm. draw their own conclusions rather than attacking them. Yeah. And we talked about this even more talking about Mary Midgley. Ugh. This is like the anti-Midgley. Yeah, because the effectiveness of Midgley's arguments was so blunted by the way she carried out the argument. Whereas, like I said a minute ago, Tefeki basically just gets to lay out the evidence in a way that's really hard to argue with and then say... 
you can draw your own conclusions here. Yeah, I mean, and it's structured. It's an argument. Mm-hmm. Like, research is an argument. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there's other ways that you can formulate this. And there's other ways that you can talk about, like, the aims and goals. And But, like, she does this particular type of argument, and you get to the end of almost all the chapters. You're like, kind of, yeah, though. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to argue so, with this one. Yeah, yeah. There are some things we'll talk about in the next episode where we're we're like uh, mm. but in general i agreed with like 90 percent of this book yeah on one level it was like i read it i was like well yeah that actually just describes reality in a way that <laughs> i have not had explained to me before right. like because it's kind of non-obvious why occupy failed mm-hmm. right like they had a big old park in the next to wall street down the street literally and national and global protests that sparked off of it yeah and so when she described why it failed i was like oh yeah that does make sense that helps yeah and then looks about um chapter nine which i think we'll have to dive into for the last few minutes here when she talks about like why and how effectively governments have pushed back you kind of i i looked at that chapter and i was like this makes sense this is disconcerting extremely i don't like that this makes sense and as much as the things she had identified were the case in 2016 when she was writing all of them have been dramatically amplified over the last four years which is also troublesome in that it leaves you saying wait if it's gotten substantially worse over the next four years is it gonna keep getting substantial well so so here's here's the 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 quick version of chapter nine which we'll spend a lot of time talking about in the next version is that the original version of the Arab spring protests in 2011, the internet was not taken seriously by the governments that were eventually toppled or modified in significant ways. About 2015 governments sort of got on the ball and sort of maybe even earlier for some places, but in a lot of places, Uh, Iran and China figured it out in the nineties. Well, that's, that's a whole other thing. And she does talk yes. about how they are whole other things, which is why you can't just be like China now. Right. She she notes that you can't just imitate what China and Iran have done because they started playing important parts of this mm-hmm. game 25 years ago. Yeah. So China and Iran off to the side for a moment, but governments kind of got on the ball that weren't on the ball and said, okay, if information access is unable to be cut off which is what dictators usually did, was just cut them off of information. Traditional censorship. Traditional censorship, media blackouts, just the whole nine yards. If that's unavailable, we can just make it impossible to know anything. We can just flood the channel, all of them, with bad information and make it so hard to figure out what's true that people don't mobilize. And so if they don't think that anything is believable or possible or even happening, then they won't do anything. Now, there's some very interesting corollaries to this that I will point out in the next episode that like, and she points out at the very, very end in the epilogue that like, this is more like chess than it is a a zero sum game in that like the government pushes and then the people push back and then the government pushes and then the people push back. And so... The one thing I'll say about America's contemporary state is that the number of ballots that have already been cast pre-election day is staggering. Yeah. It is. We are on track to have 
probably the largest turnout of an election percentage of the population since like the early 1800s when like two thirds of the population could not vote. So there's push and pull that goes on. And she points that out at the end. And she says she does not make a pessimistic statement at the end or an optimistic Mm. statement at the end. She just says like, we just keep going. Like stuff keeps going. I'll note that a theme throughout the book and a relatively subtle one until it comes very much crashing home in chapter nine is one we've talked about off and on for years, but really kicked off by Alan Jacobs, 79 theses on technology. Mm. And that is the critical importance of attention and Mm. what we give attention to and how attention gets disrupted and Mm -hmm. the power of all of that. So expect a great deal of discussion about that Mm -hmm. in our next episode. Yeah. We're going to pack that next episode. We're just going to pack it all in there. Next month's book, dear listeners, is Robin Sloan's Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. I started it last night, and it's really wonderful. So we really encourage you. Stephen, Stephen actually, I think, already finished it, right? I, I did, actually, because I was having a bad week with everything, and I was like, I already own it. Let's read it. And like it cheered me up. Yeah, I, I started reading it last night, and it's just it's just a joy. So even if you've read no other books with us this whole year, you should pick this one up and read it. It's going to be worth yeah. your time. You can get it for cheap at Alibri's. True that. The music at the beginning of the episode was Ode to Youth by Liam Moore. Stephen, did you pick that one thinking about the youth involved in protests, or did it just happen to land? Uh, it happened to land that way, although I did. I mean, it was serendipitous, but I helped. <laughs> Very good. Thanks to Liam Moore for letting us use it. Please don't use it without permission. If you want to support the show, you can do so at Patreon slash winning slowly. If you want to support us directly, you can go to cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly, which uh, helps us keep the lights on here, pays for our twist app, helps to give money to the Internet Archive hosting stuff just stuff all the things yeah if you'd like to get in touch with us you can do so first of all because we're old school by email hello at winning you can also reach us on social media on twitter at winning slowly and facebook at winning slowly podcast steven will see those i will not that's right but i will read your email even if i don't reply to it it will go down into his his into his my brain. soul Oh, I would see. I was going to say soul, but then I didn't want to like, I didn't want to presume, but there you go. And as always, thanks for listening. You can also reach us on social media. Blah, blah, blah.